John chapter 10, verse number 19. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for Jesus' sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil. He's mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at, the, at Jerusalem, at the Feast of the Dedication. It was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave, me, gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And at that point, they attack the Savior. We ask Heavenly Father that you would bless as we glean a couple of words mm. from this scripture and apply them to our hearts. May the Savior be glorified in the eternal salvation that he, by grace, gives to these wretched creatures. Meet our needs. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sixty-two years ago, sixty-three years ago, I knew a little boy. He was like every other child in the neighborhood. He was average. He played outside from after breakfast until the streetlights came on. That was the rule. You came in when the streetlights came on. The only thing making him slightly different from others was his allergy to mosquitoes and mosquito bites. When the boy was bitten, the sight would immediately turn into a dime-sized red spot with the point of entry forming a little head. When it began to itch, he would scratch it. Who wouldn't? And immediately the red spot would grow and begin to swell. And then, of course, the scratching would tear the head off and the itch would intensify at that particular point. Apparently his mother didn't know about or could not afford Benadryl, which was licensed in 1947, 46. So the treatment her son would get was an application of calamine lotion. You remember calamine, some of you do anyway. He got that calamine lotion where he needed it and when he needed it, which was constantly. By the end of the mosquito season, he looked like some sort of spotted leopard or maybe just leper. I don't know how many times that little boy heard his mother say, don't scratch your mosquito bites. Don't scratch your mosquito bites. But of course he did. Oftentimes, without thinking about it, he just scratched and he scratched and he scratched until it bled. 
Well, that little boy grew into manhood, and eventually two things took place. First, I don't know how, somehow his body chemistry changed, and the mosquitoes didn't seem to relish him with the gusto that they did when he was nine and ten years old. And the second thing, he learned how important it was to listen to his mother. Don't scratch the thing. If you don't scratch it, it won't get any worse. Try to ignore it. Think about something else rather than the mosquito bite. And to this day, if he begins to scratch that bite, he will be scratching for several days. I see some of you scratching. And then, of course, there is Benadryl. This morning, I'd like to make a comparison. Mosquitoes and their bites to sinful temptations. Some people seem to be more plagued with temptations than others. But actually, mosquitoes are not all that selective. They'll bite anyone who has some exposed skin there, unless it's protected in some fashion. Some people sin by scratching each and every temptation that comes their way. And others only scratch once in a while. They've somehow got it in their minds. Don't scratch. Don't scratch. It's all in the flesh. It's all in the mind. But nevertheless, they restrain themselves to a little bit. This scratching illustrates the sin. Scratching is disobedience against uh, Father. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Paul said, awake unto righteousness. Sin not, he said to his friend Timothy. Flee also youthful lusts. We have the exhortations. We have the exhortations, but I admit, sometimes it is hard to ignore a really good scratch. Uh, it just, it's pleasurable. It's not healthy. It's pleasurable. Sometimes scratching goes on and on until the pleasurable becomes painful, until there's a wound there. And in that scratching, not only do we sin against our own bodies, we sin against the will of God. Even Christians scratch their temptations, despite the fact they know they shouldn't. They have a little more ammunition. Their mother, their father has said, don't scratch. And it's not just the uh, society that says, don't do it. When that temptation comes, they could apply the lotion of those scriptures which speak against that particular scratch. And when that itch attacks, they could turn, they should turn to the Benadryl of, of prayer and fellowship with the Lord. Sometimes they do. Often they don't. But as every saint knows, Christians don't always do what they could do to protect themselves. Yeah. So they scratch, becoming infected. And sometimes they create ugly spots which can be seen by everybody. Even more sadly, some of those Christians become so upset with themselves that they even begin to question whether or not they are children of God. They know they should not sin against their Savior, but they do. And they think, 
My Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And I have heard him. But why can't I heed him? Why can't I obey him? Maybe I'm not one of the Lord's sheep. Maybe I'm deceiving myself by thinking that I am saved. Maybe I'm really not because I continue to sin. Are you one of those Christians who sometimes doubt your sheepness because you sin against the Lord? Have you ever sinned, or excuse me, have you sinned again, causing, to, causing you to question your faith and whether you really did repent before God? Are you one of those people? I'd like to take you on a little walk down through a mosquito-infested forest to a very pleasant and peaceful place. First, we'll go down a very common, well-worn trail. And then I'll take a different route to the same place. The second path is less traveled, I suppose, but it is one with some wonderful scenery, some nice comfort along the way. When God saves a sinner from his sin and the judgment of that sin, he does so completely. He does so absolutely perfectly. It's done. Please keep, keep in mind, never forget, you and I as sinners contribute nothing to our salvation. Nothing. Salvation is entirely by God's grace. And since there is nothing which we do to contribute to salvation, there is no way we can mess it up. It is all of God. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities which flow out of our salvation, our new relationship to the Lord. But there's nothing which we can add to that salvation. There's nothing that we can do to remove that salvation. It is in Christ. And in that regard, what did Jesus say in our text about the kind of salvation and life which he gives to his sheep? What does he, how does he describe it? He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. This is a well-worn path reiterated over and over again by God's ministers for 2,000 plus years. The Bible is full of this kind of statement. In fact, about a dozen times the Apostle John uses the words everlasting or eternal when speaking about the spiritual life which flows out of faith in Christ, the salvation which Christ gives. One of the best known verses we just read a few minutes ago, John 3, 16. It's also in the preceding verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Didn't I hear a few minutes ago someone said something about never dying? Everlasting life. The words eternal or everlasting 
refers to something which never ends. And it doesn't matter whether those words are coming from Greek or Latin or Swahili. We'll even say French. It doesn't matter. It never ends. Never ends. Very early in my ministry, I had a highly confused professed Greek expert try to tell me that eternal speaks of very, very, very long time. No, it doesn't. That's right. It's forever. A very long time might come to an end. This doesn't come to an end. The context teaches us that, uh, uh, excuse me, John 6, 51. I am, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The eating is not with the mouth. It doesn't happen through osmosis in the hands. It's by faith. Eating Christ by faith produces everlasting, never-ending, eternal life by the grace of God. As I said, beside John's use of forever, he says eternal and everlasting 10 or 12 other times. And usually he does so in his quoting of the Lord Jesus. John 3.36, the end of the chapter that we read earlier. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Then there's John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. John 6, 40. In 1 John, the epistle written by this man who wrote the gospel, John says in his own words, this is the promise that God hath promised us, even eternal life. And in chapter 5, this is, a report, this is the report that God hath given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, eternal life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal, never-ending life and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, not to be outdone by John, the Apostle Paul uses the same language, Romans 5, 21, As sin hath reigned unto death, even so hath might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that very well-known verse, chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal yes. life yes. through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in his letter to Timothy, Paul unequivocally declared, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, 
that in me, first Jesus Christ, might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him unto life everlasting. And by the way, the next verse, Paul uses the same word to describe the eternal nature of God as he does the eternal life that God gives. So if our eternal life can end, it might mean that God himself could end. And that's just not going to happen. Now under the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Are you, are you one of those Christians who has been deceived by God's enemy into thinking that your eternal life can end? That somehow you can do something to bring death to eternal life? Are you scratching on the head of that mosquito bite of unbelief? Leave it alone. Look at the promise. Are you one who thinks that despite God's promise, the life that he has given can be revoked or withdrawn? He breaks his promise? Do you think that the God who is so... Un, you do, do you think that God is so unjust that he would give and then take it back? The justice of God speaks of his perfection. Your salvation from sin, the forgiveness you have been given came from the grace of the omnipotent and sovereign God. There is nothing that Satan can do. There's nothing that you might do to undo God's gift of salvation. The eternal life which you have received has been guaranteed by the God who cannot lie. Titus 1-2. Every Christian has the opportunity to live in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised from before the world began. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, He which establisheth us with you in Christ hath anointed us is God who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Every child of God has been sealed to the Lord with the eternal Holy Spirit himself. Yes. This is the most common path that faithful pastors share with those who sometimes doubt their salvation. There is that word. It is undeniable. There it is. Believe it. It's perfect. It's irrefutable. It's indestructible. That should settle the matter in any and every believing heart. Now let's go down another path to the same place. When God redeems and saves a humble soul, he obliterates all that sinner's transgressions. The Bible uses a number of terms to state and illustrate what the grace of God has done to our sins. And I will admit that obliterate is not found in the Bible. The word isn't there. 
but it is appropriate. To obliterate is to wipe out completely. To erase so thoroughly that there's not even any chalk dust on the blackboard. I mean, it's complete. The other day, I also heard that Christ annihilated our sins and the judgment against them. Again, that isn't a biblical word, annihilate. It is appropriate, though. It is a biblical thought. To annihilate is to destroy utterly. It is safe to say that which God annihilates ceases to exist. Perhaps those aren't Bible words, but this one is, or these two are, blot out. Blot out. After Peter and John were used of the Lord to miraculously heal a man, Peter was given the opportunity to preach to a large number of Christ, uh, Jews, not Christians, uh, relatively short time after the crucifixion. He pointed out that those people had, through their leaders, they had taken the Savior and crucified him. Then he said, there in Acts chapter 3, and now, brethren, I what I know through ignorance you did it, as also did your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, so hath he fulfilled. Repent you therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Amen. Blotted out when the times are refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. It is possible through the blood of Christ to have your sins blotted out like the miraculous washing away of an indelible stain gone by the grace of God. Indelible. Perhaps Peter was given this thought from his reading of Isaiah 44. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out. I have blotted out as with a thick cloud thy transgressions. And as a cloud thy sins are gone. Return to me, for I have redeemed thee redeemed thee. That scripture gives me the opportunity to stress that God saves, forgives, and blots out our transgressions, not in order to make us feel good about ourselves. Why does he do that? He saves our souls that in our earthly bodies and lives, we might have opportunity to serve and glorify him. He blots out our transgressions, giving us reasons to strive to live sin-free. Finishing Peter's thought in, in Acts 3, just before the officials arrested him, he went on to say, Unto you, God, having raised up his son Jesus, send him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. 
Our sins are blotted out as far as the view of God is concerned. But those mosquitoes are still out there. They're going to be here until the millennium. But we have the opportunity to live without scratching. We have not only the opportunity, we have the ability. How can I be sure of my deliverance from the penalty of sin? I can be sure because God has used the blood of Christ to wipe them all away. And please remember that God is not confined to time, which means I am forgiven forever. And in regard to sin, those of the past are blotted out and those of tomorrow and even the sin I might commit the last day before eternity starts. They're all under the blood of Christ. They're all taken care of. So you've sinned again, Christian. Are you enslaved by some habit which you consider to be wretched and wicked and sinful? Are you still scratching? Grieve over it as the Holy Spirit convicts you. But don't think for a moment that those sins can mysteriously reappear in God's sight. When he says they're gone, when they're wiped away, they're wiped away. You will not pay for them. The child of God has had his sins paid for by the blood of Christ. Yeah. Jeremiah shares with us a concept which is first uttered in regard to Israel. But the principle applies to God's forgiveness in any day and to any kind of people. You might turn to Jeremiah 50 just to follow along. i got several verses here. Jeremiah 50, verse number 17. It begins with a little bit of background, but by verse number 20, we have a universal principle. Jeremiah 50, I hope I'm starting in verse number 17. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria hath devoured him, and more recently, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria already. And I will bring Israel to, into, excuse me, I will bring again, I will bring Israel again to his habitation. And he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for. And there will be none. The sins of Judah, they shall not be found. Why? For I will pardon them whom I yes. reserve. Perhaps a few years from now, most likely in our lifetime, Israel will be living once again in peace and prosperity in the land that Jehovah gave to them so many years before the Canaanites moved in. At that time, by the grace of God, 
All the sins of that nation will be forgiven and wiped away. All their acts of theft will be gone. How they participated in the crucifixion of Christ, forgotten. I don't know if anyone will actually look for them, but at that point, there shall be none left to find. Gone, so says the word of God. They shall not be found. And why? Because the sinners God pardons will be utterly and completely delivered. And the principle applies to New Testament saints and 21st century saints as much as it will to the Jews uh, at the end of the tribulation. Daniel 9.24, you're probably not too far from there, you might as well turn there. 9.24 talks about the same period of time when Israel will be restored to her former glory. For the moment, let's just skip over the details and the promises of national prosperity and just look at the principle involved. 9.24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, Israel, Daniel's people, and upon the holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. To make a reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophet, prophecy and to anoint the most holy. What takes place in the application of God's salvation? Well, one of the things is the complete end of sin. All transgression as far as God is concerned upon those whom he has saved Gone. I'm not saying that you and I will never sin. But in the sight of God, those sins will all be under the blood of the Redeemer and they will not come up before God for any kind of judgment. The judgment has been paid. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. When Christ Jesus delivers and forgives, sins cannot be found. They're blotted out, they're finished, they're come to an end in God's sight. Micah, chapter 7, shouldn't be too far away, might be a little more difficult to find. Micah, chapter 7, presents a wonderful illustration of what happens to the sins of those whom Christ forgives. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like unto thee, Jehovah, that pardoneth iniquity, that passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. God will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart's a song. Buried in the deepest sea. 
Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are G-O-N-E. Gone. They're gone. Of course, Micah is giving us an illustration. It's an anthropomorphism. It's an attempt to express in human terms what was perhaps humanly inexpressible. But to the ancient Israelite, like Micah, nothing was deeper than the ocean. If it's at the bottom of the ocean, it's, it's gone. And even today, what lies at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is essentially irretrievable. You're not going to get it back again. Not only does Micah say that our sins are at the bottom of the sea, he adds they are subdued. They are beaten down and put into bondage under God. They are jailed. They are incarcerated with the key thrown away as far as the Lord is concerned. In God's saving grace, our iniquities are pardoned as if they did not ever exist in the Lord's mind. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. As vivid and beautiful as that picture is, there's one that I like even more. Turn to the book of Psalms. 103 to be exact. Verse number 8. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. He laid those upon Christ. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him, that trust him, that worship him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? I've given you this illustration before. I like it too much. I have to give it back. We're not talking about the east coast and the west coast. X number of miles. We're not talking about eastern culture versus western culture. How far is the east from the west? If you got into your little Cessna single-engine prop plane and you started flying north, you'd enter Canadian airspace. You might fly over Calgary. You might fly over Banff first. Make sure you make that little loop there. And then on up to Edmonton. And you might fly over, oh, I don't know, Yellowknife <laughs> into... The Arctic, you might fly over the North Pole. It's a big tank of gas in this airplane. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in Siberia after flying over the North Pole. And you look at your uh, uh, gadgets on your yeah, dashboard and you find, I thought I was going north. I'm going south. When did that happen? It happened automatically. But if you started flying west from here, you might fly over Japan and China. Eventually, you might fly over Europe and back to 
the east coast of the United States, you can circle the world 12 times, flying west all of the time, and you'll never get to the east. It just goes on and on and on. It's infinite. God's salvation is infinite. It's eternal. It is complete. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Done. Perhaps taking a small step back, I will finish this for you in a few minutes. Let me add to the illustration already given. Isaiah 38. Please turn to Isaiah 38. This is in the context of Israel's ministry to Hezekiah, the king of Israel, king of Judah, I should say. A relatively good man. Relatively. Notice verse 11. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. Maybe Jacob in our illustration this morning might have said the same sort of thing. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I'm only 11 years old, but I'm dying. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I, I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed, is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut, I have cut off like a, a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness from day even a night wilt thou make an end of me I reckoned till morning that as a lion so will he break my bones from day even to night wilt thou make an end of me like a crane or a swallow I did chatter I did mourn like a dove mine eyes fail with looking upward O Lord I am oppressed Undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath spoken unto me, and himself hath done it. I shall go softly all the years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me, and make me to live. Behold, for peace... I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. I save this scripture for last because it ties together several important truths. We see here a man who is absolutely broken. Everything religious, Whatever spiritual things there were in his life, whatever morality had been in him, was sucked out. He felt that the holy and just God was out to destroy him, which is essentially true. Nevertheless, he by faith could see the grace of God. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live. In himself, Hezekiah, a relatively good human being, had nothing but bitterness for peace, as he understood that he was a wretched sinner in the sight of God. He began 
scratching that itch of unbelief. Where am I going to go? How am I going to be cured? But then he pulled back. He said, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. The repentant sinner hasn't had his sins cast behind his back. The Lord has cast that sinner's sins behind God's own back. Never to be seen or remembered again. Isn't this what you need? Isn't this for what you long for? Deliverance. Salvation and permanent deliverance from the judgment of your sins. These are available in Christ Jesus. Cast your sins upon the Savior by faith. Cast your soul upon Christ by faith. You have no alternative. No other place to go. You don't need to do anything to be saved. Surrender. Trust. Yes. You can do that where you sit. You don't need to go to a cathedral. You don't need a priest. You need the Lord. Submit. Surrender. Trust Him to deliver you from your sins and the pain of eternal judgment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In a moment, I'm going to pray, during which time we'll have the ladies come and go to the instruments. Well, I'll ask Brother Hogue to step forward as well, and he will lead you in a closing hymn. During this time, as we sing, if you're unsure about your soul's salvation, right there where you are, Submit yourself to Christ. Yes. Trust yes. Him. And when we're done, if you need to speak to somebody, find another Christian in the congregation or come and speak to me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege that You've given to me this morning to once again share another aspect of uh, Your salvation. May what's been said this morning be added to what's been said many times before so that the sinner might see Jesus high and lifted up with blood flowing from his wounds mm. shed for the salvation of many. Speak to hearts. Save souls, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Please stand. Page 489. 489.